It's hard to believe that October is almost over. I am sort of a delinquent on getting this episode out. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I've been dealing with a little bit of laryngitis this week, and it's better than it was, which is good. So I'm hoping that everyone who is listening is not able to tell that I feel like I still have a frog in my throat. Jeez, not only do I have laryngitis, but I'm struggling to form words. So I'm going to try and keep this episode a little brief today, and I do this with the promise of an additional surprise episode. Next week, rather than the one episode that I had originally planned to do, I'm actually going to do two. So we're going to start by covering a relatively contemporary murder that happened in 1992, and then later in the week, we are going to be looking at a really outstandingly salacious trial, and we're actually going to speak to one of the suspects in the original murder case. Then, because I believe in ending things with a bang, we are going to have a season finale come out on October 31st. That's going to be the uh, long-promised update episode on the Ouija board case. So get stoked. I'm really, really excited to share it with everybody. So without further ado, we're going to get into it. episodes I have recorded of this podcast, which admittedly is not as many as my previous podcast encounters, I have not really been afraid to record an episode. I've been intrigued, maybe a little spooked, but this episode I am legitimately a little nervous to record. There's a couple of reasons why. The first is I am alone in the Capital City Museum as I do this recording. This isn't normally frightening to me. I spend a ton of time alone in this museum. I am really a, a one-man band on something, so I, I spend some time here when everyone else has gone home for the day or I come in really early. And typically it's me and the city historian, but sometimes she's out, so I get the opportunity to just bask in the historic nature of this building. But this time I'm feeling a little spooked out because I'm alone and I'm going to be talking about a murder that directly affects the space that I'm in. Now, I toyed around with recording this episode in the place where some of what we're going to chat about occurred, but ultimately I could not bring myself to do it. And that brings me to the other reason why I'm a little freaked out to record this episode. We don't have a scary museum. If you've been here before, you know that we're very family friendly. We have a lot of really cool historical material. However, there is one exhibit that beyond any shadow of a doubt freaks out guests nine times out of 10. And I get why. This exhibit is to the assassination of Governor William Goebel. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the assassination of Governor William Goebel. And those of you who have not seen the museum are probably thinking, what's so scary about an exhibit about an assassination? Like, was it a really gruesome assassination? What happened? Well, 
It's Friday for a reason actually not related to the assassination itself. And it's only frightening to a, a select subset of people. And definitely those of us who work in the museum, I will say, are frightened by it at times. It's frightening because the room where it happened, as it were, um, which is actually not really true. It's not the room where the assassination occurred. But regardless, is actually staged as though the aftermath of the assassination is being reconciled with. So there's mannequins who are modeled after real people and there's uh, fake blood and it's a fake doctor's office. It is terrifying if you don't like mannequins, which I've learned a lot of people do not. But what makes it truly a terrifying place is that if you work here directly across the hall from a door that is being opened by a mannequin, yes, you heard me right, there is a restroom. And if you are not actively thinking to yourself, as I exit this room, I am going to be face to face with a mannequin, it will scare the bejesus out of you nine times out of 10. If you're alone in the museum using the restroom and you exit and there's a mannequin standing in front of you, it will scare the bejesus out of you 10 times out of 10. And so that room is why I will not record the podcast down there because I have heard from certain people that they're convinced that those mannequins move, but the fact that I'm alone in here and I've heard from other people that they have had experiences with Governor Goebel really puts me on edge. So I'm bringing in a little bit of the spookiness today. I don't have any ghost stories from people who have experienced Governor Goebel in the Capital City Museum. If that is something you're interested in learning about, we actually do talk a little bit about this with Sally in our earlier season. I can't remember offhand which episode it is, but I recommend you checking it out and hearing a little bit about her experience. Spoilers, not in this museum, thank goodness, but she shares a story about seeing blood running down the wall of her home, uh, which is equally as terrifying, if not more so than an assassinated gubernatorial elect being in your space. So, if Governor Goebel is listening to me record this, and if you are actually listening to this episode, that most likely means that I'm okay and I have not done horribly wrong by him. However, we will see what happens. And I do have one more caveat before we get into the murder and the assassination. As we talk through this, if you're thinking to yourself that you want to learn more about Governor Goebel, the history of the legislature in Kentucky, or the assassination of Governor Goebel, not only should you visit the Capitol City Museum, but you absolutely need to go visit our friends at the Kentucky Historical Society across the street. They actually run a museum out of the old state capitol, which is where the event occurred in a true sense of the word. And they give a really great tour uh, with some really frightening and jarring artifacts that I recommend you checking out. Again, go visit them, Go come visit us next or vice versa, but you absolutely should check out their tour. It is one for the books. Okay, now we're going to talk about the assassination of Governor Gopal. Let's go back to the mid-1800s when the future assassinated governor of Kentucky is born in a log cabin in Sullivan County, Pennsylvania. Now, his birth was actually remarkable for a couple of reasons. The first is that he was two months premature, and the second is that he weighed less than three pounds at the time of his birth. Now, I am no medical historian. I'm not. But knowing what I do of the 1800s, 
I can safely make the assumption that his later success is um, amazing (laughs) because the odds that a child would survive with these kind of medical concerns at birth uh, in the 1800s is truly medically impressive. But again, I am not a medical historian. So he actually, according to some historical records, didn't even learn to speak English until he was about six years old. There's no direct, sorry, the reason I paused is there was a very bizarre noise in the ceiling. So we're just noting that uh, for myself and for those in posterity who might be listening to this upon my death. I'm kidding. I'm sure I will live. Anyway, so we know that he didn't speak English until he was uh, almost six years old. And this is in large part because he was raised in Pennsylvania. So the Pennsylvania Dutch are a very well-known social group who primarily speak in, in, you know, Dutch. And he ended up ultimately moving to Cincinnati, where he became an apprentice in a jewelry store. His interest in politics, we can kind of make an assumption, was spurred on at a young age due to the Civil War. So he was born in 1856, and his father in 1861 decided to go fight in the war for the Union. As they were a more northern family, this is, again, not necessarily a surprise. However, he grew up in this awareness of Civil War and Civil War politic as the Panic of 1873 set in. So for those of you who are not familiar with this, it's not uncommon, as I think we maybe appreciate in our post or, you know, during COVID era here, that the disruption to the supply chain can cause some issues, especially if all the people who complete the farming and agriculture and raising and industry are taken away from their ability to do that, either because of a pandemic or because of a war. And so what ends up happening in post-Civil War in 1873 is that agriculture prices dropped, labor wages decreased, and farmers honestly entered an era of depression. It really hit them very hard. Conversely, much like the rise of Amazon during the pandemic, the railroads prospered. So there was new taxation that was introduced through the federal legislation that allowed railroads to become more prosperous due to the tax breaks that they were offered. And really what this resulted in, that ultimately becomes a huge crux of the global assassination is that politicians started to make deals with the wealthy gentlemen who owned the railroad companies. So they began to prosper because the railroad companies to whom they were providing tax breaks were also prospering. And Governor Goebel, future Governor Goebel, he saw this happening and formulated a very strong opinion against the unregulated nature of the railroads at the time, which they essentially were. I mean, they were given really free reign of the the land and they were able to to really move a lot of product and people for very little cost in 1877 he graduated from cincinnati law school and he became a corporate lawyer and a very successful one at that we know he was incredibly wealthy and as a result 
became a mentee of the former governor, John White Stevenson, who at the time was a U.S. senator and eventually became Goebbels' law partner. So he was not messing around. Like, he really got out of grad school and then started to grind and really worked his way up very quickly. He was known as a very excellent attorney and not a surprise to us, he specialized in corporate as well as railroad cases. So this is where we begin to see the true crystallization of his anti-big railroad agenda. He then also gets a different law partner. Uh, This person is named John G. Carlisle. They became law partners in 1883. So for those of you keeping track at home, this is six years after he graduates from law school. And Carlisle was also very politically minded and politically connected. So he became a speaker at the U.S. House of Representatives. So he was not participating at a local political level, but on a national stage at the House of Representatives. Later on, he actually gets elected a U.S. senator about seven years later in 1890. And then, get this, three years after that, in 1893, he becomes the secretary of the U.S. Treasury. And once again, this person, Carlisle, was Governor Goebbels' law partner. So Governor Goebel truly becomes enmeshed in this political scene. He's a- among the political movers and shakers. So while Carlisle is moving up the ranks of the United States political system, Goebel actually decides to run for office too, uh, but not in Ohio. Instead, he runs for office in Kentucky, where he becomes a state senator out of Covington. So Kentucky, being not without its political scandals, actually has a scandal very early in Goebel's political career, which helps push him successfully onto the state political legislature stage. So he becomes a state senator in 1887, and in 1888, a gentleman known, I kid you not, as Honest Dictate, who was the incumbent state treasurer who had served for over 20 years as a state treasurer, actually absconded uh, with the state treasury. So, woohoo! Uh, it's phenomenal. It's really a long con, I think, at that point. And as a result of this, the state legislature creates the position of state examiner as a hope to prevent any possible repetition of this type of affair. Now, as this reform was taking place and this new position was being created, Goebel continued to push for new reforms. A lot of these dealt with the advancement of political rights for both women as well as for people of color. And um, what's interesting to note is that, like, while historically we know that Goebel was relatively left-leaning in terms of his belief in the advancement of rights for people of color, we also know that he abstained from voting in the separate Coach Act, which dealt explicitly with the rights of people of color to uh, ride in the same coaches. His other political affiliations were that he was against the institution of state lotteries. He was honestly just against gambling or anything kind of adjacent to gambling because he also was against pool rooms, which were a big social avenue at the time. He also was against the monopoly on school textbooks and trying to diversify the publication of school textbooks. Not surprisingly, we know he was against big railroads, 
as well as big business, and he was actually for prison reform. So the city of Frankfurt at the time was the home to the Kentucky State Penitentiary, which was a really brutal institution and actually served as the place where our contemporary prison system that is used all over the nation was really um, uh, institutionalized and began to be accepted as common practice. But to give you a sense of, of what he was seeing happen in prisons, which led to this point of view, was that he would see 1,000 prisoners that were crowded into cells that were actually designated to only hold 780 people. And oftentimes these cells measured less than four feet wide and seven feet long. There was also authorized punishment of prisoners using tools such as thumb screws, sodomy, food filled with maggots, and women prisoners were also forced to go to men's barracks at night. So truly heinous things were occurring and he was for the reform of the prison system. So these political leanings really came out during the Honest Dictate affair as a additional push for uh, new reforms by Goebel, none of which were truly successful. And we also know again that Goebel abstained from some of the voting that came onto the legislative floor. So we know that vocally his heart was in the right place. After his term as a state senator in 1895, he gets embroiled in his own little scandal. So on April 11th, an ex-Confederate who was a really good friend of Goebbels' enemies, political enemies, his name was John L. Sanford, is actually shot and killed by Goebel in a street duel. Sanford, Sanford's wife, a niece of uh, General Humphrey Marshall, was actually placed in an insane asylum as a result of this duel. Now, knowing that Goebel was involved in a duel and knowing that contemporary oaths of office in Kentucky involve the outright statement that you've never been involved in a duel, do lead one to wonder about the connection between the two, but that is wondering for another time. One year later, Republican William O. Bradley becomes the first Republican Kentucky governor. And Goebel believes that this election is actually fraudulent. And he suggests that the big railroad actually backed the Republican Party, allowing for the vote of this Republican governor into office. Goebel is still a senator at this point, or he's back to being a senator, and he becomes the Senate president pro tem, which is essentially like the second in command there in the Senate. And thanks to the historical acumen of those who came before me, I have an absolutely amazing and simultaneously wild list of descriptors that I've been provided to paint a picture of Goebel at this time in 1896. So he was described as medium height, generally trim. He had contemptuous lips, a sharp nose, he had small, ferret-like, glassy, dark blue, humorless eyes, black, slicked-down hair, a pale face, heavy jaws. Irvin S. Cobb, who we'll talk about in a few, uh, said that he had a reptilian look about him. So, obviously, the uh, conspiracist in me loves that. 
He's described as bold, arrogant, confident, tenacious, absolutely fearless, extremely forceful in pursuing his goals, audacious, ruthless, a genius in leadership, a great gift for the organization. He disliked being in crowds. He never shook hands. He was never a religious man. He was cautious and aloof with those he did not know. He belonged to few clubs and lodges, was not a very good speaker, and he loved power. He possessed a great intellect, and this was most likely the result of his voracious reading. He seldom visited the theater. He had no interest in sports. He drank beer, but only in moderation. He quit smoking cigars as he aged, and he very seldom, if ever, was romantically linked to any woman. He lived an unexciting private life, and he spent most of his time focusing on work. He often spent his evenings reading to prepare for his cases. In 1898, he introduced what is known as the Global Election Law. So this is a central state election board, which would be set up by three members who were selected by legislative vote, and they would become the final judge on all contested elections. So Goebel used this against the Republican fraud he said occurred when Bradley was elected. He really was very, very determined to keep the Democrats in power. One year later, in December 9th, Goebel wins the Democratic nomination for governor. But this unfortunately caused a party split due to his very divisive aura or persona. So dissident factions in the same party nominated a John Young Brown, which is probably a familiar name uh, familially to a lot of Kentuckians who are listening. But unfortunately for the Democratic Party, ultimately Goebel lost the election to Republican William Sylvester Taylor. The vote was very close though, so Taylor had tally votes in his favor at 193,714 to Goebbels, 191,331. John Young Brown, he had 12,000 votes, and Populist Party member John Blair had a little over 2,000. So by December 14th, the Democratic State Central Executive and Campaign Committees made an appeal about this election. They actually took it to the legislature and suggested that this election was inaccurate and the votes needed to be recounted. And they stated that the legislature would be the final judge of the gubernatorial contests, and it ultimately resulted in a Republican victory. However, the General Assembly's Democratic majority appointed a select smaller committee of 10 Democrats and one Republican to investigate any claims of fraud related to the election. So the next year in January, prior to the sworn in statements of the Republican gubernatorial Victorian victory wielder, I'm so sorry, that word is just not coming to my brain right now. Please tell me what it is when you listen to this podcast. I would love an email about that. But anyway, Uh, Prior to being sworn in on January 16th, there was actually a shootout between two men in Frankfurt that resulted uh, in 18 shots in less than two minutes. 
and three men being killed as the result of the shootout, with an additional four men wounded. And this caused sort of a heightened tension that was almost palpable in the air in Frankfurt. On January 13th, gubernatorial candidate and uh, Senate pro tem Goebel was entering the old state capitol building for a recount of the election when at 11.15 a.m. a shot echoed from the old capitol annex. Governor Taylor, who was the governor at the time, called out the Kentucky State Militia and ordered the legislature to convene in London, Kentucky, rather in Frankfurt. Bullet, which ultimately caused his injuries, entered his body three inches to the right of his nipple and ultimately shattered a rib, sending bone splinters into one lung. It also pierced the right lung and exited through his back near his spinal vertebrae. That evening, against probably all odds, the legislature still met to discuss the election and legislative Democrats were actually able to disqualify enough votes, uh, specifically Republican votes, that they agreed that rather than the governor-elect, that Goebel and Lieutenant Governor John Kreps Wycliffe were the actual winners of the election. And Beckham, who was leading the oversight committee, is the one who made the announcement later that day at 8 p.m. As I said, the current incumbent governor at the time actually feared for his own life in mostly response to the shootout from the few weeks prior. So at 9 p.m. after the uh, election results are announced, he actually orders the General Assembly to meet in London for the remainder of the week, and he orders an additional 30 troops to guard his family at the executive mansion, and he actually remained on the Capitol grounds, surrounded by, reports suggest, about 500 soldiers in order to protect him. The next day, on January 31st, the members of the legislature came to the Capitol to test the proclamation regarding the actual election results. They then uh, were turned away by the soldiers who were guarding the Capitol, and they went to the Opera House, which is now Capitol Theater, but were also blocked by soldiers. So they then moved to the courthouse, but were stopped by soldiers once again. And the Republicans who were meeting here began to leave for London. The Democrats met in the Capitol Hotel that evening, and they heard the committee report on the election results and adopted it unanimously declaring Goebel the rightful governor, which was unfortunate because he had been shot, but whatever. Um, so around 9 p.m. that same day, January 31st, Goebel is sworn in as the governor, uh, even though there is, you know, already another governor. You know, it's kind of a wild thing, but, but we're going to talk about the outcome of that. So anyway, Goebel is sworn in as governor on his deathbed by Chief Justice James H. Hazelrig. And uh, he provides his only official act as governor, which is to order the troops removed and the legislature reassembled. Obviously, uh, at this point, the state of Kentucky's got two governors and a very split and divided political system, as well as a lot of summoned militia. So there's some craziness going on. So throughout this political unrest, uh, 
Governor Goebel is still attempting to recover from his wounds. And ultimately, as we know, this does not go very successfully. So two days after his inaugural swearing in, uh, he begins to feel the effects of the wounds in his body internally, as well as the treatment that he received at the doctor. And he begins to have uremic poisoning and blood begins to fill his lungs. He ultimately develops pneumonia that day and is given injections by the doctor to ease his pain. But unfortunately, by 10 a.m. the following day, his condition has worsened significantly. Uh, he ultimately tries to fight through and asks for drinks of water, but by 45 p.m. he lapses into unconsciousness, and by 6.44 p.m. on February 3rd, he passes away. It is reported, reported, that his last words were, Tell my friends to be brave, fearless, and loyal to the great common people. Beckham decides to succeed him in his gubernatorialship at age 30. So throughout this process, the doctor's office is overseen by several men, one of whom is State Journal editor Irvin S. Cobb, who gets the opportunity to tell a first-person account of this great drama. So there's a few potential reasons that have been floated for the motive behind Goebbels' assassination. One of the ones that I first heard when I moved here was that it was political revenge because Goebel wrote a uh, op-ed about one of his political opponents and insinuated, if not stated outright, that they had a sexually transmitted disease and that caused that person to be very agitated. I've also heard that it is the result of the duel, which he won, and revenge for the duel. I've heard political motives. I've heard uh, just outright, you know, zaniness, craziness, what drives, you know, some of these other horrific acts. But we ultimately don't know. This did not stop people from being accused of being the murderers, <laughs> but we really don't know who did it. Um, a few things that we learn from other historical pieces from the newspaper at the time is that the governor of the state of Kentucky actually asked for presidential help because he was very concerned about the strife that this election was going to be causing his community. Now, as a longtime senator for the state of Kentucky, Governor Goebel's funerary process was, as to be expected, a little intense. So the first thing that happened was that he uh, was returned to Covington, Kentucky, which is where he was considered his home. And this happened on February 6th, so four days after he passed. And it's estimated that over 100,000 people got in line to view his coffin as it arrived at the train station. The next day, however, Goebel is returned to Frankfurt and the casket is taken to the Capitol Hotel. Sorry, I had to check my notes on that one and make sure I was correct. So at this point, uh, in much decreased numbers, over 20,000 Central Kentuckians came there to pay their respects to Governor Goebel. And ultimately, the funerary procession led from the hotel to Frankfurt Cemetery and it's reported that on this day, rain was so strong 
that umbrellas were proven useless. Very solemn reports of the funerary procession as well as the rain. The State Journal actually shares with their audience that pickpockets were having heavily frequenting the crowd at the funeral. Uh, so this is an excerpt from the February 9th edition of the CJ, and it reads, As is usual in such big crowds, many persons were robbed by pickpockets and diamond pinchers. Colonel Mackenzie Todd of Georgetown, the well-known horseman, was robbed of a diamond stud valued at $400. An attorney of Richmond also lost a diamond stud worth $500. Detectives Krim and McDermott of Cincinnati, Armstrong and Harding of Louisville, and Gaffney of Covington undertook to stop the work of the thieves and circulated through the crowds. Armstrong and Hardy arrested Phil Gentile, alias Dago Foley of Louisville, as a suspect. Gentile is the man who robbed Mr. Bisco Hinman of a diamond stud in Louisville a year or so ago. Detectives said that while they have no proof against Gentile, they knew he had come to Frankfurt for so they locked him up. I really cannot make some of this stuff up. Um, so the funeral ended with bells being told as a farewell and public buildings throughout the state of Kentucky were draped in funerary colors in order to mark the solemnity of the occasion. Uh, they also stated that the family of Goebel would remain in, in Frankfurt for several days before returning home. The newspaper went on to publish some statements about who he was as a person uh, and his kind of personality. But immediately following the burial, the state po political climate did not inherently calm down. So as of February 28, 1900, so about a month after he was shot, the New York Times actually published a piece special to them titled Chaos Reigns in Kentucky. State business stopped, banks withhold public funds, and all officials hold on to offices. Though Kentucky has two officers for every state office, the business of the state is completely blocked. Each officer has his own force of deputies and clerks, but his hands are tied. The prospects are that chaos will exist for a few days, but as soon as the county officers begin remitting to the Democratic officers, affairs will proceed meaning while the Republican officers can do nothing but hold on to their offices. The banks have determined to hold on to what money they have belonging to the state until the courts have decided which treasurer has power to draw it out. How much of the money remains is not known. In order to pay the militia, the Republican treasurer drew heavily from the banks and paid in cash instead of by warrant, and there is no way of telling how much had been drawn. The Democratic officials today gave notice to Postmaster Holmes to send all mail addressed to the officers of the state at the Capitol Hotel. Postmaster Holmes refused to say whether he would obey the notice or not. There have been several complaints about tampering with mail addressed to the Democrats here, and particularly mail that may contain information regarding the search for the assassin of Senator Goebel. And Mr. Holmes is in hot water, an inspector of the Post Office Department, having been ordered here from Washington. Complaint was filed by Commonwealth Attorney Fosgrove and Justice Goebel. So, woof, stuff was going on. Uh, we do, however, know that ultimately the political chaos does calm down, which is a very good thing. And there is some semblance of order returned to the state where they uh, ultimately decide to let a judiciary committee 
oversee the outcome of the election rather than the other way around. Now, I know the big question outside of motive is, okay, who are the accused? And they cast a very wide net for this uh, throughout the course of the trials. You heard me right. Over 20 people were accused as either principal or accessory to the assassination, and 16 of those were indicted. Three became prosecution witnesses on promises of immunity from prosecution, and of the remaining 13, only five went before a jury. Three convictions resulted from this. So the three convictions belong to Caleb Powers, Jim Howard, and Henry Utsi. So Caleb Powers went through four trials, and uh, Governor August Wilson June, eight years later in 1908, pardoned him officially and said officially that Utsi shot Goebel. Henry Utsi was Utsi was pardoned in 1919 by Democratic Governor James Black. And the third gentleman, Jim Howard, went through three trials and was pardoned by also by Governor August Wilson June, who said he was innocent. And shocker, Utsi shot Goebel. But ultimately, we <laughs> don't know who did it. We do know that the trials were obviously exciting pieces of gossip and information for the community, and they were widely attended. Here at the museum, we have a really amazing artifact, which is a cane from one of the jurors of the Powers trial who borrowed, took, unclear, a shell casing that had been entered into evidence during the trial. He took the shell casing and actually made the tip of a cane from it. And we have the cane on display downstairs. So it's, it's really, really cool and odd. It's one of those bizarre historical oddities that you don't get to see very often and honestly would make a great piece in the, uh, what is it, the uh, museum TV show where they talk about the odd artifacts that tell crazy stories. I cannot think of the name of it. Also, please tell me that when you listen to this. So the Goebbels assassination, while still a pretty much unsolved case. We have no definitive evidence that points explicitly to who committed the act. It is still a powerful story for those of us who live in Frankfort, Kentucky, and it's one that still sits with us. Not only does it point to the political nature of our community and how we are founded ultimately and have grown ultimately as the result of Frankfort being the capital of Kentucky, while now we have a very diverse industry, this really drove us for the first many years of our existence. But we also, and this is very nerdy of me, but we also have a very rich uh, cultural affinity for um, balladry and musical tunes. So one of the things that came up during my research actually belongs to the History Center uh, but the original music was entered into our archives, so I'm lovingly borrowing it and hopefully reintroducing it to a new audience. But it's called The Ballad of Willie Goebel, and it was <laughs> written by tour guides at the Old State Capitol. And it goes to the tune of El Paso, which I will quietly play under this track, starting now. Down on the streets of Old Frankfort, Kentucky, Dear Willie Goebel was shot to the ground. Though many people say Goebel was plucky, you sure can't be plucky while lying face down. 
The unknown assassin ran from the annex, through the militia, through the wild crowd. He knew they would hang him if they should catch him, because shooting the governor just wasn't allowed. Through Goebel's gray jacket, the bullet continued, in through his armpit, into his chest, out through the back, and into an oak tree, leaving life's blood to stain Willie's vest. His people, they carried him to an old hotel, calling for doctors from far and wide. Meanwhile, the valiant Kentucky militia surrounded old Frankfurt to keep all inside. Alas, Bill succumbed, but not before taking the oath as governor of our commonwealth. And while the whole rhubarb was never resolved, it did not do much for Bill Goebel's health. So drink to poor Goebel, our slain leader, man of the statue that placed just outside. Weep, let us now, to think of poor Goebel. This shouldn't be written had the scoundrel not died. My challenge was answered in less than a heartbeat. The handsome young stranger lay dead on the floor. Out through the back door of roses I ran, out where the horses were tied. Thank you so much to everyone who joined us today. I know I said at the beginning it was going to be a short episode, but my goodness, I forgot how much awesome research we have about William Goebel. And that deserves a very special shout out to former city historian Russ Hatter and former curator of the Capital City Museum, Nikki Hughes, for compiling such an extensive database of information. So thank you so, 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 so much to you both. I really do encourage you to come check out the Capital City Museum. I only realized after recording that I don't think I very clearly stated that there's a doctor's office, former doctor's office downstairs where Goebel was brought after he was shot and treated until he was relocated to the Capitol Hotel where he ultimately died. So it is very creepy and spooky to check that room out. Uh, mannequins notwithstanding, uh, we're always open Monday through Saturday from 10 to 4. And if you're listening to this and you live in Frankfurt, I really hope you're going to join us at the Haunting on the Hill event this Saturday from 5 to 9 at Fort Hill at Leslie Morris Park. The museum's really excited to be involved with that, so please come check it out. I also want to say that in this last week, there's been a boon of support for this podcast, which has been amazing and really humbling. As I said earlier, I'm kind of a one-woman show in a lot of ways, and this this show, outside of research, which is a huge thing, so I'm not trying to downplay it, is a one-woman show. And uh, it came to my attention that an individual who I just am like flabbergasted by posted a really complimentary review on the podcast to iTunes, which is so appreciated. So thank you, thank you, thank you, Chris Brainerd. It means a lot. And I am completely humbled that you listen to my other podcasts. And I welcome you to this one. And I'm so glad you're here and that you follow uh, some of the other appearances I have made on other podcasts. So thank you. Also, thank you to Gordon Sanders, who listened to this not knowing I hosted it. Uh, So I got a really nice message from him. And, you know, I just am over the moon to get to share these weird and bizarre and troubling at times histories of Frankfurt. And I think they're really fascinating. So thank you all so much. If you've listened and you like the podcast, or if you listen and you hate the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes or 
Spotify. I don't think you can review on. But anyway, leave us any review that you can. If you can't review or you hate to review, then please send me an email. I like to know ways that I can improve and things that I can do a little differently. So thanks again for listening to Kentucky Deceased, Hauntings of Frankfurt, and I will tell you some more spooky stories next week.